The message from God's Word will come from 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel 6. Israel had fallen into great darkness, we know in chapters 1 through 5. We saw the degeneration of worship. The priests were immoral. Um, The sons of Eli, Phinehas, and Hophni. Uh, And now, after a great defeat in battle, uh, the priests of God were killed. Eli, in fact, also died. Now they have no high priest. And the ark was captured. We find today that the ark is going to be in the hands of the Philistines for seven months. So for seven months, the priests are gone. They're dead. There's no worship that's happening. The ark is gone. But what we found out in chapter 5 is that God actually doesn't need our help to win battles. We saw Dagon, the Philistine god, fall before the ark of God. The second time he fell, his head and his hands broke off a sign of victory over that God. And now God seems to have brought such great disease upon the Philistines that they want to send the ark of God back where it came from. This is 1 Samuel chapter 6. Please remain seated and I'll have you stand if you are able at the very end of this passage in honor of God's word. This is God's holy inspired word. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we should return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you, and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart, and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord, and place it on a cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way. And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know 
that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along the highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice offerings sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Would you please stand for the reading of the last five verses, please? This is God's inspired word for you. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, and he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirith-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have come, have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Amen. Would you please be seated? May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word and Your power. We thank You for Your providence. All of the lessons that we see in this text. Lord, we pray that You would impress them on our hearts. We pray that we would know that You are holy. And You need nothing. You accomplish all that Your Word sets out to accomplish. Lord, open our eyes and ears in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon is Too Familiar with God. Too familiar. But first I want to look at the Philistines and how they treated God. I want to look at the Israelites and how they treated God. And finally we're going to ponder the holiness of God. Because Israelites, in this particular reference, were much too familiar. A good friend of mine was uh, at the same base as I was at this particular time. He was a colonel, a full colonel, and one of only three colonels on the whole base. 
It was a large base. Everyone knew him. And his daughters were becoming engaged and married about this same time. And one of the potential sons-in-law came and visited this base to get to know the family, to meet this man and his wife. They had never met. They were driving around together, the colonel and the future son-in-law, and they were enjoying each other's company. And as they drove around the base, the son-in-law said, well, well, Chris, what do you think about this? And he stopped the car and he said, get out of the car real quick. And they walked around to the front of the car and he said, I don't mean any rudeness to you. But you can refer to me as Colonel or Mr. Bargery, but not Chris ever. And he told that story to me later, and of course I laughed because he's a nice guy. He's a wonderful man. But what was he doing? There was something that was just much, much too familiar for that particular role that he was holding at that time. His role as protector and guardian of his daughter was not something that was flippant in his mind. And he wanted to maintain a little bit of professional distance in case he had to hurt that boy someday. So, that just reminded me a little bit of kind of what has happened to the Israelites. They have become very, very familiar with the ark of God. The ark that was supposed to be kept behind curtains. The ark that was never to be gazed upon. And somehow, they would become much too familiar. But a lot has happened before that. And that's what we're going to start with. Is just starting in verse 1 and look at how the Philistines seemed almost to treat the ark of God with even more respect than the people of Beth Shemesh. Of course, they're pagans, and they had no idea that he was the only true God, granted. But they certainly are putting a lot of effort into this delivery of the ark. Starting in verse 1, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. Seven months. Seven months they're ravaged by disease, we read in chapter 5. There's tumors that are breaking out upon them. We read from the lords of the Philistines, it's from the highest to the lowest in the land. And there's rats running all over the place. It sounds like the plague. People are dying everywhere. Nobody wants the ark in their land. So they said, how should we send the ark back? What should we do with the ark? They brought in their smart people. There's always smart people that give advice. The priests and the diviners. What do they say? Well, they're not as smart as they might think. Because they get a lot of it wrong. But here's what they say. Return the ark with a guilt offering. The guilt offering. And what do they want to return it with? Five golden tumors and five golden mice. One for each city. This sounds actually kind of funny. It's like Samuel, when he wrote this all down, he brings it up so often that it's almost like he's thinking it's humorous. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? That somehow this golden mouse and this golden tumor are going to appease the Almighty God. 
course, you can see Samuel. Samuel knows that it's only by blood, the shedding of blood, that any sin is appeased or atoned for. And only the blood of Jesus Christ. So certainly, five golden mice and five golden tumors must seem hilarious indeed. But they wanted to send a guilt offering. A guilt offering. Let's think just a minute about guilt. When you think of guilt, it's an easy concept to understand guilt, right? But there's actually a couple kinds of guilt. There's legal guilt. Like you break the law, you're legally guilty, right? You may not feel the impact of that guilt. That's kind of the emotional side of guilt. The emotional guilt, it's a result of your conscience. When you sin and you feel it, the Holy Spirit impresses that upon you. You feel something. So there's a legal guilt and an emotional guilt. We've all felt guilty before. We've all been guilty. So the Philistines were like that person who got caught doing something. They got caught and they don't like the consequences. They're like, oh no, this is horrible. We don't like how this feels. They got caught. They're really sorry they got caught. But they don't really feel guilty. They just want the situation to end. It's a very pragmatic thing because they don't care about the moral wrong, how they've dishonored the holy God. They don't like the consequences of their sin. This is a legal guilt without any of the emotional guilt. So they send a guilt offering kind of pragmatically. Had nothing to do with them feeling like they'd offended the holy God as much as they just wanted to get out of the situation. How many of us treat God this way as well at times? I think we're all tempted in this way. I really sinned today. I had this horrible thought or I did this horrible thing. I know. Tomorrow I'll get up extra early and read my Bible. And I'll go to church twice on Sunday this week. And I'll give an extra $10 in the offering plate. You see, that's a very pagan way to look at guilt. But this is what we're tempted to do as well. But what that misses is who God is and how we are to worship Him. He's not appeased by gold like some pagan demon. The only guilt offering that's acceptable is the shedding of blood through sacrifice. And the only sacrifice that's acceptable is, of course, the blood of Jesus. The cleansing power of the blood of the Lamb. But they want to send a guilt offering. And here's why. In verse 6, he's explained, they're explaining why. Why? Why they need to send an offering with the ark. Why should you harden your hearts? As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. This word harden, again, you remember I, I spoke about this the first, I think, three sermons on Samuel. This word harden is the same word that's used for glory and for heavy. It's the same exact word, kavod. And Samuel is making this word what it is. He's showing this word to show the glory of God. Eli was heavy with self-indulgence. The Philistines are hard. They're not glorying in, in God, in Christ. Why should you harden your hearts. The Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. They were hard toward God. And there's obviously a sense that they sought their own glory. 
to use the other meaning of the word, and they despised the glory of God. The heaviness of God's glory came upon them and crushed the Egyptians. And that's what they're referring to. They're saying, we don't want to be like this. The reality is they already kind of are like that, aren't they? God is, His glory has crushed, His heavy hand has crushed their land as well. And they're being punished for their impudence. The Lord is acting apart from the armies of Israel. He's doing it all Himself. And they knew what had happened to Pharaoh. They knew what had happened to Egypt. This was such a stupendous victory for Israel and such a a horrible defeat for Egypt. And remember, at that time, Israel was nothing. They were just slaves. Egypt was the superpower of the entire world. So the Philistines had heard about this, and the Canaanites had heard about this. How he had dealt so severely with the Egyptians, they say. And this phrase, dealt severely with, is more than just he's really hard on them. There's also this sense of making fools of them. He's humbled them through all of the plagues to such an extent and then destroyed the army in the, in the Red Sea. Yes, it was severe, but they were also being made to look foolish before the Almighty God. It was so public and so severe and so final what they did. The greatest nation of the earth had been made to look foolish before God. So the Philistines did not want that to happen to them. So send a guilt offering. Let's send the ark on its way. Ian Goliger makes the point that this shows us in some sense that even the people who have never heard the gospel, they know something about God. They know something about God. They know that they deserve or he deserves their allegiance. He deserves their worship. It's just hardwired into the DNA of our global race. Everyone knows that there's a God who deserves our obedience. It doesn't need to be taught. The Philistines didn't know everything about God, but they knew. They knew enough to know that He was real and they were tired of feeling His wrath. So what do they say in verse 7? What they're doing is they're setting up this little impossible situation so that God would have to work a miracle to show Himself, to prove that it wasn't a coincidence. The new cart, the two milk cows that have never come upon a yoke, or come on whom have never come a yoke. Their calves are sent home away from them. And then they just put it on the road and watch where it goes. Did they really need to do this though? I mean, these people for seven months had felt the hand of God. Everyone had heard what had happened to Dagon, I'm sure. This was Almighty God. But they would not be satisfied unless they saw another sign. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us another sign. They needed more evidence that God was really God. So what was this test, if you will? The new cart. It's a brand new cart. In other words, it's in good working condition. We don't want it to break on the way. We don't want anything to upset it so that we can say, I really don't know if that was God or not. 
We want a brand new cart, something that we know works. Now we, not, we want two milk cows that have just calved. And one of my cows is about to calve. My suspicion is that I probably will not be able to get that calf away from that cow easily. But they're going to separate the calves from these two milk cows. They're going to separate the moms from the babies. Jerry hates it when I say that. They're going to separate the mama cows from the baby cows. And they're going to hook them up to this cart. Now, they've never pulled a cart before. This is something you have to train animals to do. They've never done it. But they're going to put the yoke on them. And they're going to see what happens to these cows. Are they going to go to Beth Shemesh? Or are they going to go somewhere else? Are they going to go back to their calves that they've just taken from them? They're going to let the cows go on their way and watch. That's the plan. So they've set this whole thing up. It would be crazy for the cows to go to Bet Shemesh because their babies are over here. They've never pulled a cart before, so even if they want to go to Bet Shemesh, they probably can't even pull the cart without knocking everything off of it. But let's see what happens. That's their plan. They wanted one more sign. God condescends to speak to us in so many ways. And these pagan men saw God speaking through cows and what they did. So the people do this and the cows went straight, it says in verse 12. Straight in the direction of Bet Shemesh along the highway. Lowing as they went. They turn neither to the right or to the left. Now picture this. They're lowing. They're not happy. They're not excited about this trip. They're longing to be back with their, their calves. They're lowing the entire way, but they go straight down the highway. Not turning right or left. It was as if someone were driving the cart and just whipping them down the road isn't it? Of course, God was driving that cart. They had the driver who would not let them go to the right or to the left. Someone was driving these cows down the highway. This was no coincidence. It miraculously was pulled perfectly, I'm sure, straight to Beth Shemesh. This was the hand of God. This was no coincidence. The Philistines followed them all the way to the border. They saw it. But did they really need this new evidence? They already knew it. Their hearts had been hardened. They suppressed the truth, as we all do, Paul says in Romans 1. It reminds me of the response of the Jews after Lazarus was raised from the dead. What did they do? Some believed, but most of them made plans to put him to death. It doesn't matter how much evidence you provide to the world. They will not believe the gospel apart from the Spirit of God. They will hate the church no matter what they see. The Philistines did not repent. They still worship Dagon. Any desire to accommodate the culture, to win the culture, it's a failed strategy. It will not work. We do one thing and we do one thing well. We preach and teach the Word of God. We administer the sacraments. We pray. We come together in fellowship, and we love each other. Everything else overflows from that. 
but doing things to try to get the culture's approval, it doesn't matter what they see from us. A new miracle, a new work, a new way to make a concession to culture to gain their approval. We heard at the conference last week, when has the church made concessions and it ever been reciprocated? Never. When has the culture ever made a concession to the church? Never. And yet we see time and time again the church trying to win the approval of the culture. It's not going to matter. Just like these Philistines saw God, saw this miracle, it did not matter. The social justice movements, the openness to sexual preferences in the church, it's not going to change the opinion of the world one iota. In fact, they come to despise the church because we kind of left our charter when we start doing these things. Culture doesn't need us to become more like them. Culture needs us to call culture to God. To devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. The methods, the ministry, and the mission of the church never change. It's a word ministry. We don't need to try to do something great to impress the culture. They will never be impressed. They will never believe apart from the Spirit of God. We are just called to be faithful. To be faithful. The Philistines never repented. But let's look at the Israelites. In verse 13, they have been without worship for seven months. And they look and they see the ark of God coming. The ark of God is coming toward them. They must have been thrilled. Indeed, in verse 13, it says they rejoiced to see it. Who knows how much they knew about what had happened to the Philistines in their land. But the reality is God had brought the Philistines to their knees. All by himself, he had done what the army of Israel could not do. Much like he manhandled the Egyptians, he humbled the Philistines until they sent him out, or his ark out, laden with gifts. And then the cows stop at Beth Shemesh. Beth is the Hebrew word for house. Shemesh is sun, the house of the sun. I love that. They stop at the house of the sun. It's a border town about seven miles from Ekron, and it just so happens in God's providence, in God's providence, that some Levites inhabit this town. And these Levites, in God's providence, happen to note that the cart stops right by a giant stone. It sounds like God is setting up a sacrifice. The Levites are there. They know what to do. And now we see the ark returned and they're rejoicing. So they sacrifice. Oh, by the way, the owner of the field's name is Yeshua. God saves. Now, typically it's, well, it's in the law that's forbidden to sacrifice anywhere except the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a place that contains the ark. We don't know what exactly is going on with the law of God here at this particular moment. But it would seem that since the ark was there, the sacrifice was accepted. They sacrificed to God. They renewed their worship. They cut up the cart. They slaughtered the animals. And they renewed worship and communion with God. Life was good again. After seven months of darkness, 
the glory of God seems to have returned. But disaster seems to strike the people of Bet Shemesh. Verse 19 says, God struck some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Seventy men died. God is holy. I think what this says, first of all, this passage speaks of God being the only God. The Philistines needed to learn that He was the only God. But secondly, we see that God is holy. He's a holy God. The ark was never to be looked on by anyone but the high priest. Even when it moved, you might think, well, how did they move it when they were going through the wilderness? What did they do? The Levites were supposed to cover it. It was never to be gazed upon. It represented the holy presence of God. It wasn't just something to be stared at. It was inappropriate. It was too familiar. The men of Beth Shemesh rightly said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They were terrified of His holiness. They wanted nothing more but to be away from God's presence. God had suddenly become a terror to them. Why? Because He was not meant to be treated in such a familiar fashion. Yes, intimacy is what we all desire, even in the Old Testament. Intimacy was an invitation of God to worship with great intimacy. And we know this because all of the worship generally included sacrifices on behalf of all people. Even in number 6, we mentioned this morning, the Nazarite vow was open to all people, men and women. And the Nazarite vow was all about worship. You were allowed to actually approach the altar after the Nazarite vow and burn your hair up on the altar, symbolizing your own self. Women, men, whether you're priest or not, everyone could do what only the priest was allowed to do in the Nazarite vow. So intimacy was not the issue. God called His people to intimacy with Himself in worship. But not familiarity. There's a difference, isn't there? They treated God in a very familiar way as something other than a holy God. This is the God who burned the top of Mount Sinai with His presence. It's the God who inspires dread at His coming. I love in Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah, where he sees the seraphim and the robe of uh, the Lord is filling the temple. And the seraphim are calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe to me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is so different from us. He is so holy, so set apart, that for us to be in His presence inspires nothing but dread because we know we are sinful and the distance between us and God is too great to fathom. And yet in His love, He sent His Son to reveal Himself to us, to exegete the Father, 
John 1 says. The Word, Jesus, came and spoke God's Word. He dwelt among us. We got an intimate relationship through Jesus with the Father. I think we're often guilty of doing the same thing that the Israelites did of Beth Shemesh. We gaze upon God in a very familiar way. We consider Him a very close buddy or companion rather than the holy, immortal Creator God. Yes, we want intimacy with God, and we have that by the Holy Spirit through Christ. But not familiarity. Well, how might you treat God in a familiar way? Well, let's think about that. I was thinking of the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments. The third commandment comes most readily to mind. We will not, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I know you're saying probably what I said when I first thought about this. Well, I don't say God's name in vain. I don't say God. I don't say God plus damn. I don't say Jesus in anger. I don't say gosh even. But that understanding of the third commandment is just pharisaical. It's like the Pharisees, they thought, well, as long as I don't literally murder someone, kept that commandment. Right? That is not how we look at the commandments. The most wooden, uh, wooden application of the requirement. God desires worship from the heart. Obedience from the hearts. And when we look at God and all the ways that He works, all of His names and titles and attributes, all of His ordinances and word and works, these are all holy. We don't speak them in vain. Anything else is like gazing upon the ark. So how familiar are you with God? Or how holy is God in your life? How do you speak about God? When you hear someone say something like, the big guy upstairs, you should shudder. Oh my good bud Jesus, me and my, my homie. Someone said that to me and I just almost, well, I almost hit him. But What a disgrace. What blasphemy. Do you speak of God with reverence and awe? Or is He just your co-pilot? I'm guilty, have been guilty of this throughout my life, though I'm trying with all of my heart to change. But have you ever told jokes about the precious doctrines of Scripture, about heaven and hell, like it's some happy thing, some joking thing? The inspired Word of God is a matter of laughter for you? How do you approach the Lord's Supper, His ordinances? Is it with humility and awe? Or is it something you just don't even think about until you see it in the bulletin? Oh, the Lord's Supper today. He set aside one day in seven for His worship. It's a day of holy rest, Sabbath rest. Is this day set aside for worship, are you gazing at the ark? Are you treating Him as unholy? Is it actually set aside for your own entertainment? Your own leisure? 
And there's so many other ways. I mean, this is just a five-minute list. As you allow this scriptural truth to penetrate your soul, and you begin to think about all the ways that you view the holy God as a very familiar thing, all the ways you gaze upon the ark, allow the Holy Spirit to convict you. Treat the Lord as holy. So what's our response? Well, it's, I think, spoken not by the Israelites, but spoken by the Philistine magicians, the diviners. Verse 5, give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off of you. In other words, pursue God. Pursue God. Consider who He is. The Holy God. Consider what He has done to bring us into His family. He has bought you with a price. And then pour out your heart to this God in repentance and sorrow. He will lighten His hand from off of you. But more than that, your love will be deepened when you consider the holiness of God, the greatness of His love to send His Son, and not only that, to put His Spirit within you so that these truths weigh upon your soul. What a wonder that He would bring sinful people like me and like you into His family and make us holy. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that You are a holy God. You are completely unlike us. We pray that as we meditate on Your Word and Your commandments, that we would treat You as holy in our thoughts of You, in our words that we speak about You, in the way that we live towards You, that You would be holy. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your Spirit that makes it alive for us and changes us. We pray for power to do what You have told us to do, that You would help us because without Your help we can do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.